Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me to wrap up our six-part Batman v Superman event is my best friend, co-host, and unapologetic Clark Kent lover, Patrick. Hello, everyone. It has been a fun time talking about our two favorite superheroes over the last many weeks, and tonight's conversation should be no different. The most recent solo Superman film starring Henry Cavill and Zack Snyder's interpretation of the character has unsurprisingly been met with plenty of divisive opinions. But us, we love this movie, and we're about to discuss why. Right after this quick promotion, because we do like our promotions. And this is a movie, Patrick, I wanted to, I'm actually hyped about this. So the last couple of times we've gotten the opportunity to do some of these indie movie promos, they've been movies that have been good. And it's kind of hit or miss, right? Some of these times we get offered the opportunity to do a giveaway and to do a promo. And I will read the premise of the movie and just be like, whoa. <laughs> that is not good. But this one caught my eye, namely because of who it stars, and also because it just is one of those kind of fantasy-esque type plot lines that it just sounded like a lot of fun. So the movie's called Love and Monsters, and in Love and Monsters, seven years after the monster apocalypse, yes, that is what they call it, Joel Dawson, along with the rest of humanity, which is not much, has been living underground ever since giant creatures took control of the land. After reconnecting over the radio with his high school girlfriend Amy, who is now only 80 miles away at a coastal colony, Joel begins to fall for her again. As Joel realizes that there's nothing left for him underground, he decides against all logic to venture out to Amy, despite all of the dangerous monsters that stand in his way. Now, it does star the amazing Dylan O'Brien, of Maze Runner and Scorch Trials and the Death Cure fame. Also the lead actor for American Assassin, which I just rewatched tonight. Still decent and, and I'm still disappointed because that series had such amazing potential. The guy could be an action star and they just, they just, man, they messed that movie up, unfortunately. And I think he was also in the Teen Wolf TV show. Uh, it stars Jessica Henwick, who was in Game of Thrones, Michael Rooker. And Ariana Greenblatt as well. And it's a thrilling adventure that delivers epic action and laughs from the producers who brought you Stranger Things and Arrival. And also from the co-writer of a movie. So the co-writer of this film, rather, was also the director of a movie that we promoted recently called Spontaneous, which I thought was very cool. And actually, once I watched this, Patrick, it was very telling because tonally, while a guy trying to survive in an apocalyptic world of monsters is not the same thing as a high school romance where your classmates are randomly exploding. They feel very similar in a lot of the emotional ways that the characters are dealing with things that are around them and how they're just interacting with people in the world. So I, I can really feel his fingerprints all over this as well. And I, I liked it a lot. So 
I love this movie. I thought it was a blast. I will describe it until the day I die to everyone I can as Zombieland plus The Last of Us. I read an interview and they talked about how The Last of Us was a strong inspiration for this. And uh, yeah, the lead character's name is Joel. So I kind of picked up on it like right away. I was like, I wonder if that was intentional. And now that I know that they were inspired by The Last of Us, I'm convinced. But it does have that Zombieland feel. The main character has, he doesn't have rules, but he has kind of, he learns a set of lessons that help him survive out in the world. And he is very much kind of this bumbling idiot as we get started, right? He's he's a lot like the main character in Zombieland, where you wouldn't expect this to be the guy that made it through the apocalypse, but yet here he is. And it also has a dog. So that was a welcome treat because after Batman v Superman, Patrick, we are going to be launching into a string of movies all about dogs to celebrate me getting my first ever puppy here in a few weeks. And so that was cool. The dog in this movie is a really big player and he will make you melt. I got to tell you, it's great. Just a lot. It's a lot of fun. The whole movie is hilarious. The monsters are really well designed and just I was impressed with it not having an extremely huge budget. They look really good. So I loved it and I highly recommend Love and Monsters. It's in theaters. So if you're able to get out to a movie theater and you're feeling like that's safe for you, I would recommend go seeing this one because this is not the kind of movie that typically gets to be put in theaters, but it'll look great there. Um, other than that, you know, it's PG 13 and it'll be on VOD for purchase or for renting on October the 20th. So you can watch it at home as well. Last but not least, we did have a few giveaway copies of Love and Monsters, but we decided to give these away in our Facebook group. And we just wanted to mention that again, that this is a place where it's ever growing and it's full of amazing film fans talking about movies all day, every day. And we just wanted to be able to kind of give them a little treat. So we gave the copies away there and you're welcome to come join the group. It's available for anybody. Facebook.com slash groups slash feeling film we'd love to have you and we like to give little perks every once in a while to the members of our group and our listener base there so love the monsters check it out that's all i got patrick i know you didn't get to it but i think you're gonna love it well i'm excited and the fact that it's from the same director that brought us spontaneous that we both really enjoyed i think i'm in for a real treat i've got my digital copy ready to queue up at some point when i'm not sleepy and that will happen hopefully later this week also my brazers are playing game seven of the nlcs so you know probably a little distracted right now but i will get to it and hopefully i would like to i'm saying this kind of on the air off the air whatever that i'd love to cover spontaneous in its entirety as an episode at some point and if this is anything like that then maybe we do a little double feature sometime that'd be cool yeah that'd be a nice little fun donor pick or something some extra yeah content we could think about doing i like that because those are both very good two of the most surprising or how do you say those pleasant surprises of the year i would say for myself uh, they came out of nowhere and i was just like man i, I could rewatch both of these right now they're that enjoyable well let's transition into a movie that we both have seen and we both love as previously mentioned man of steel we're here to talk about that and your love for Superman, and we are going to get started right now with your one-word takeaway. The word that I chose was necessary for a number of reasons. One, when this movie came out, I felt like it was due. We've, we're in the midst of a lot of Batman 
boots and reboots and more boots and some other superhero movies. And what we didn't know at the time was that DC was launching their own extended universe and that Man of Steel was going to be the beginning chapter of that. Hadn't really seen a lot by Zack Snyder up to that point. Hadn't even seen Watchmen, as a matter of fact, which seems like a sin at this point in my life. But I remember seeing early on this guy, Henry Cavill. Is he like a Brit? What the heck? Why is he playing Superman? We need a better Superman than that. The last Superman entry we got was Brian Singer's Superman Returns, which I rewatched. And came away kind of feeling the same way. I was whelmed. I wasn't overwhelmed or underwhelmed, just whelmed. And I remember thinking that I wanted this to succeed so bad. Went to a midnight feature with my old boss. And I think I remember talking to you offline when the movie came out saying, I want this to be good. I want this to be really great. Because I love the character so much. And for me it was necessary to have a new entry. It was necessary to have something that felt aggressive, that felt confident in itself. I felt like Superman Returns was kind of a, a soft homage to Richard Donner's first and second movies, or the first two Superman entries. Man of Steel felt aggressive. It felt very much like a high-powered superhero movie, packed with an origin story, packed with a villain, and all of the necessary components that I think make a really great superhero movie. And I really believe that Zack Snyder hit the nail on the head for the most part with all of those things. The idea of necessity was also kind of prevalent in the movie itself. We had this character, Kal-El, who has been thrown to Earth. A story that we already know, but giving it a fresh take on how he got there, why he's there, what he wrestles with. There's this necessary motive that I think he is weighted down with and trying to understand how to kind of execute that in a world that is probably afraid to understand him or if they did find out who he was, they'd freak out. But I feel like Man of Steel is one of those movies that is misunderstood because all we know about Superman on the big screen is Christopher Reeve. And that can be both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> we know Tom Welling on the small screen. We saw a hint of it with Brandon Routh on the big screen. Not really much of a dent in the super universe. And now we get this guy, Henry Cavill. And I think that for a lot of people, myself included, there was some skepticism. There was some kind of anxiety a little bit because we didn't know what Henry Cavill was going to do with the role. And unfairly, a lot of people probably compared him to Christopher Reeve. They compared the Snyder's interpretation of Superman with Donner's. And I think that's unfair because comic book characters should be exclusively at the very least, be those characters that should be explored because there's so much mythology around superheroes. Everybody's got an origin story, but the way in which that origin story comes about, there are so many layers to it. There's so many layers to a character like Spider-Man or Batman or Superman, and it's unfair to put one superhero in a box and say you can only tell 
this side of him. You can only tell his story this way. And what I think Snyder did was he said, okay, I will tell his story that's familiar to you, but I'm going to tell it my way. And that's where I think the success of Man of Steel for me was, is that it felt both original and familiar at the same time. And for an audience that was waiting for that interpretation to come on the screen, I think it was necessary. And I think it set the tone and the attitude for what the DCEU, despite its faults, despite its hiccups, is continuing to become as a as a universe with all the movies that are coming out with uh, the new Justice League Snyder Cut that's going to be released next spring. All of that started with Man of Steel. And I don't think from Snyder's perspective or from that movie's perspective, things have changed when it comes to tone, attitude and purpose. Well said. Extremely, extremely well said. Can I just say off my soapbox now? I'm off can my I say my one more takeaway is ditto and just let's move on? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I'll be brief. My one more takeaway was mine. <laughs> it's that simple for me. Mine, 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 as the seagulls would say. This is my Superman after watching this the most recent time. And as you mentioned, Christopher Reeve. Many people grew up with this being their Superman. I came to these movies late. I probably watched them as a young, young child, but never really went back and revisited them. Superman wasn't my guy. And going through the series of Smallville, I always probably would have told you that Tom Welling was my Superman. And in some regards, he probably still is. But having been able to watch this movie now with context of seeing Superman 1 and 2 and covering them the last two weeks and being so impressed with Christopher Reeve's performance, I came away that much more impressed with Henry Cavill as Clark Kent and as Superman and, and with Zack Snyder's interpretation of the character. And I don't necessarily think that there is a better or a worse in this scenario. And that's important. And we've kind of talked about that with the Batman movies too. <laughs> like people always want to rank things. I love ranking things. I love lists. I love having these debates. Who's the goat, you know, MJ or LeBron. It's fun to discuss, but even myself, I can get carried away. But really when it boils down to it, Patrick, I love Michael Keaton as Batman, but I love Christopher Nolan. No, I don't love Christopher Nolan as Batman. I love Christian Bale as Batman as well. Yeah, Christopher Nolan as Batman. I, I, I'm here. I'll see. Well, let's see how it goes. Uh, I'm here. I love Christian Bale as Batman as well. I love Ben Affleck as Batman, and that's okay. I don't have to not enjoy another or think that it has value in order to prefer slightly the other one, right? Christopher Reeve is the perfect performance for the tone of movie that Donner wanted to make, right? For the world at the time, seeing a superhero movie with the CGI that was available, that was the way to bring Superman to the big screen. What Zack Snyder did is the way that you reinvent and bring Superman, like you said, to a new generation. Re bring him back, man. Show him in a different way. And it's funny because we're seeing so many of the same things. And so... For me, watching literally what felt like, in many ways, Superman plus Superman 2, Supercut, 
and then remade by Zack Snyder, I was like, wow, this is wild. Like so many beats of those films very specifically. And of course, why? Because most of this is pulled from the comics. So it's not surprising, but it does feel like almost like Zack Snyder saying, look, these movies were great. Here's what this would look like today. And here's what this looks like with a character with a slightly different attitude about him, a Superman that's got a, just a little bit of a different feel. And and I really love it. It's for me, it's what I liked or what I like more, what I enjoy more and what I'm going to find much more rewatchable. And so I gravitate towards that this time around. I fell for it hook, line and sinker. And I think it's because I now have that context. So I've always liked Man of Steel. I know my second viewing, I liked it more than my first and I still kind of got hung up on some of the battles and we're going to discuss these opinions that different fans have about this movie but this time around I thought it was just almost perfect I mean I know you think some of the fight scenes are a little long and I would agree but if you're gonna have a problem like whatever that's fine show me a couple other extra buildings falling down I'm, I'm okay with that <laughs> I, I loved it I thought it was a five for me it is my favorite Superman film and so I consider it mine well, it's good. And I'll tell you this, a little trivia. The runtime for this movie was the exact same runtime for the original Superman film. I think it's two hours and 32 minutes. And what's interesting, I looked at the timestamp of when I felt like, quote, Superman 1 ended in terms of origin story and introducing everybody to the reintroduction of Zod. An hour and two minutes into the movie, we basically get Superman 1. And then an hour and 30 minutes later... Or for another hour and 30 minutes, we get Superman 2, which to me is a huge credit to Zack Snyder, because even if I do have some issues with the length of some of the battle sequences later on, this is still a pretty tight story. If you've known those first two movies, we're talking about three, three hours plus almost four hours of content from Superman one and two truncated down and giving us the same answers, giving us similar story beats. And to your point, in a more relevant, a more interesting, a more refreshing way. And I, I think that Zack Snyder, whose attention to detail is probably matched by almost nobody else in the director's chair, that's a pretty huge accomplishment for for that, especially when you consider that there's a lot of stuff here that you want to put into that movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. Agree. We're going to get into spoilers now, so if you haven't seen Man of Steel, go check it out. I think, did we say it was on HBO Max along with most of the DCEU stuff? Yeah, so, H yeah, HBO's got that stuff right now, so if you're a subscriber, which we highly recommend, we love HBO Max, go check it out for sure. I'm sure most of you have probably seen it by now, so we're just talking to a very limited number of people. But just so you know, we're going to spoil it, and off we go. Well, like Donner's Superman, and we've already mentioned this once or twice already, so just get ready for lots of compare and contrasting as we go. This film opens with the destruction of Krypton and the introduction of General Zod. I found this to be so much more enjoyable, Patrick, than the Superman 1 introduction of Zod. And I remember... When we talked about that film, you brought up, did that have a problem? Was that a problem like for me? Did it feel out of place to get introduced to Zod and Jor-El and then kind of just drop him and not bring him back until Superman 2? 
And it doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it does feel a little off. And it feels better when it's all condensed and contained in the same film. My takeaway here was the Krypton that we got to see. And I mean, we spent 30 good minutes of this movie in Krypton. I wanted an entire film of Krypton. Like, I want a movie on this planet where there are lizards that you ride and fly through the sky, where there are skyscraper in space. There's all the cool technology that we get to see explored. And one of the things that I thought really sold me on Zod as a villain, more so than the previous films, was that we get to see actual crime taking place. We get to see the overthrowing of the council. We get to see Zod murder someone, multiple people, actually. And so instead of them just standing there on trial and being kind of poofed off into a phantom zone, dude, when <laughs> the cinematic, Zack Snyder, this is the thing, like, even when <laughs> the movie doesn't connect with you in a Zack Snyder movie, you cannot help but like be visually arrested by what he creates to make you watch with your eyes and hear with your ears through the composers that he works with watching these guys get put in these pods that like cover them up slowly and suck them up into the fan i mean that's a lot cooler to me than putting them in a plate of glass again cgi is different at the time we can only do so much but basically what i'm saying is the world building that existed in the first 30 minutes of this movie to show me Krypton gave me such a better feeling of where Clark came from. And more importantly, what Zod came from and what he was looking to do once he reveals that he wants to turn Earth into Krypton. It's not just this place that I've heard about. It's not just a name to me. It's something that is like tangible that I feel like I've been there and spent time there. And there's just it's there's more time spent with the family more time there to like get to know everybody so this krypton part for me i was so completely invested in it i almost was sad when we left krypton that's how much i love the opening of this movie and so i wondered like did you feel similarly about that or you know were you more excited to actually get to clark kent because you're the big superman guy i would say that context was a huge huge uh thing when it came to the opening of this movie and i think context was what made me love this opening sequence i love being on krypton as you mentioned that getting the reveal of the technology the different cultures we're getting so much packed into that first half hour that we want to stay there we want to know more about not just why krypton exploded but what were some of the political things that were going on? What were some of the personal things that were going on? We we had the advantage of having a director who takes advantage of visual effects. We And he does it not just bluntly or with any kind of you know, sweeping paintbrush. Like He's very deliberate in the way in which he shows things. The creature creation, the... The codex, the the hints of things that we're going to get explained more of are allowing us a chance to, as you said, connect with that world. Because 
Snyder wants us to know about the world of the House of L and the world of the military side of of Krypton. How much power Zod had. I mean, when you look at that opening sequence, what you see is Michael Shannon being a great Zod. I mean, a fantastic villain. You see the passion that he wants to save the planet just as much as anybody else. Snyder puts us in a position where we're looking at Zod and we're looking at Jarrell and we're not looking at a black and white. We're looking at a couple of gray areas. We have a respected military leader in the form of General Zod. We have a respected philosophical scientist in the form of Jarrell. Zod even says, the one thing that you and I have in common is that we agree that this planet is dying. But that's all they agree on. And getting that kind of dialogue and seeing how Zod interacts with Jarrell, seeing how he responds to being arrested, it goes from being about the planet to being personal, but not at the expense of being about the planet. What we see early on, Aaron, that gets reiterated throughout the film is that Zod cares about his culture. He cares about his heritage. He cares about where he comes from. Now, the motivations behind that are really interesting in why he cares about those things. But the fact is we don't have a chance to get there in Donner's cut because of the fact that Zod in his entry is very much a great foil for Superman in that regard. We have a more complex character with Shannon Zod because Zod is a complex character. As you'll find out if you continue to watch Smallville, <laughs> is that the characters that we know and love, Clark, obviously, Lana, Lex, they're complex. There, there are things about them that make them more than just these flat, mustache-twirling villains that make them interesting. And that's what I loved about this opening sequence is that I cared about Zod. I cared about why he was doing what he was doing out of fear, out of anger, out of frustration. He was trying to protect the people of Krypton. And I think when you watch his conflict and when you watch him interact with Jarrell, it does leave that great area. I'm not cheering for the fact that Zod and his people are being kind of taken to the Phantom Zone or being, you know, batched up in ice. I'm kind of concerned about, well, what is the planet going to do? And, of course, Jarrell says, we're, we're gone. You know, we are vapor. But what we can do is save the history of this planet. We can save the future of this planet by sending this baby that was the firstborn, natural-born in centuries, a new piece of mythology that I had no idea about before watching this movie, sending this child to one of the scout ship planets that the, that the scout ship landed on and seeing what would happen there. All of those things, Aaron, I think were so fantastic because they allow for the possibility of more stories to be told about Krypton, about their history. You and I talked about this offline. What a great thing it would be to see a TV series based on everything leading up to that point. I would love to see a TV series about the world of Krypton. I know we have a series called Krypton that didn't last but more than two seasons, but it didn't focus on that. It was more of on Jarrell's dad, I think. But it was, um, yeah, it was a great, great opening sequence. 
Yeah, I think you touched on something that actually was a big part of why I feel so strongly about Michael Shannon playing a great Zod and why the character works even more for me in the context of this movie and especially because of this opening. And that's because he's named General Zod. He's a general of a military force. And in the first film, we see him with his two followers and they are sent away. We never see him in charge of anything, right? But we do get to see him briefly in charge of a little bit of a force here. We see more than just a few people being sent away with him. We understand that he still has this little group of soldiers that are loyal to him. It feels like a coup, a military coup is what I would relate this to. I was like, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, this is basically a guy who has a very similar belief to the Nazis. He says, then join me, help me save our race. We'll start anew. We'll sever the degenerative bloodlines <laughs> that led us to this state. Like you said, he has worthy desires in the end. Like it's the way he wants to get there, right? That is the issue. But yet he's got this Nazi mentality, but like he's essentially like a Russian coup is going on. I was reminded of like Gorbachev getting overthrown or something is how it felt when he walks in on this council. And he says one of the greatest lines of the movie during this open section that I thought was very prescient as well. And he says, these lawmakers with their endless debates have led Krypton to ruin. And I was like, can you not see people? <laughs> like, like We are talking about Krypton, but this is what comics have the ability to do, right? Stories in general. We can see our own world reflected in these tall tales and maybe think about how the stories that we're telling could be the way that our actual futures could end up, but we're not too careful. And so, you know, here he is, like, this planet has been concerned about essentially, like, global warming and other issues like this, and with their politicians who, again, are so busy arguing in their chambers that the planet has fallen apart and ultimately gotten to the point where it's just not going to live anymore. And so, hi, hello, Earth, wake up, is what I felt like General Zod was screaming right at us, you know, through the TV. Well, once we get to Earth, we finally get introduced to Clark. First older, and then through some flashbacks to him growing up, and eventually we see him discovering the Kryptonian ship, meeting Lois, and learning about his past from a holographic dad, dad being Jorel in this case. And I wanted to talk about this section of the film, right? I would say, you know, before we get to the point where Clark is really engaged with Lois and having to deal with the General Zod problem, this is the getting to know Clark phase of the film. And for me, I would say this introduction to the character, this is something that Zack Snyder does so well in all of his films, whether it's Aquaman, whether it's Batman, whether it's Superman, whether it's Cyborg, you know, like everybody that we get to meet for the Wonder Woman for the first time, they have a memorable introduction. And, and I think that there is some power in this. Instead of meeting Clark as a naked baby in a cornfield, which is what we're used to, we see him as an adult, shirtless, as Henry Cavill should be, 
<laughs> to appropriately let us understand the physique of this beautiful man, right? But we see him on this ship, and we get this amazing cinematic event where he, without a cape, is performing this superhuman act in order to save people on a burning oil rig. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I think it is one of the most amazing moments in the movie. It raises my blood pressure and gets me so excited. And I'm just like, there we go. Like, there's Superman. And I really enjoyed the way in which we start to flash back and we go from adult Clark doing things and moving in a timeline forward to a childlike Clark who is also sort of progressing as well. And these memories that Clark has are what are informing us about his past. We get to see the events of him in school and discovering his super hearing, discovering his laser eyes, discovering his x-ray vision, and having these incredible moments with both Martha and Jonathan along the way where we get to know his parents and his relationships. And we get to see him struggle with being the superhuman kid, just like we get to see in other Superman mythologies where he has to, you know, he's still saving a bus of kids and there's a kid that knows that he saved him, but he doesn't quite know what he saw, which is very similar to, you know, Smallville when he saves Lex and Lex spends the whole freaking series trying to figure out how the heck this kid saved him and why and trying to reconcile that. And so we get to see all of that play out through these flashbacks and I loved it. There's even a moment, Patrick, in this movie where he gets messed with by a jerk in a diner while standing up for a random waitress. And I never in a million years would have thought that meant anything. But now, because we've just watched Superman 2, I 100% think that it is an intentional nod to that film. The diner, by the way, is actually out in the middle of a tundra as well. So he's out in like the Canadian Antarctic area, which is very similar to where the diner was in Superman 2. So I feel like it had to be on purpose. We get to see Lois, a new Lois. We get to see this badass Lois who walks. I guess she doesn't walk. She flies in on a helicopter, gets some lip from a military colonel and says one of the greatest lines in the DCEU. She says, look, let's get one thing straight, guys. The only reason I'm here is because we're on Canadian soil and the appellate court overruled your injunction to keep me away. So if we're done measuring dicks, can you have your people show me what you found? Like our introduction to Lois is that this is not a cute, care careful little person. This is the Lois that is in Superman 2, who is willing to grab the bottom of uh, an elevator and ride up like the Eiffel Tower to get her story. And she's not going to take crap from anybody, right? She puts people in their place from moment one. And I think shows us that Amy Adams is a perfect casting for the character. So I think that this introduction section of the film is equally perfect. Just like we get the kind of prologue story. And then we get this introduction of characters and I love it all. I think it fits. I think it works. Uh, the back and forth function of Clark for me is fresh and gives me the story in a way that I'm not used to seeing. And I think that that was a great choice by Snyder 
rather than to tell it the way that it's always been told. We're getting the same information, but he's presenting it to us in a different order. And so it feels like it's different to us. It feels like we're learning about this character in with a different flow to it. And and I thought that it was really beneficial long term. Well, again, context. Snyder is just doing wonderful things with context. Everything that we see Cal doing is both a tension of hiding who he really is or hiding a piece of himself and at the same time fighting compulsion to save. There, That scene where we get his first kind of saving moment with the oil rig, we know that he, I guess he swims. I'm assuming he swims or he, or he runs really fast across the water. What we see is him on one he ship. Is and Jesus. Him, yeah, on, on the oil rig next. And there are these great superheroic moments that we see visually, you know, him holding up the big giant frame and, and screaming. Love that he's in a beard. These are actually shots that we see from a comic called Superman Earth One where we get an origin story of Clark trying things and spending most of his young adult life before he eventually gets to Metropolis working on an oil rig or playing football or doing things that are both in his nature and at the same time things that he fights against. The diner sequence is so much fun because he doesn't punch anybody. And yet, what does he do? He goes and just jacks up that dude's rig with no thought of remorse. This is a person who grew up as a human being with parents who told him that he had to hide who he was, who were also battling that too, who also felt that tension. And so the context of seeing these flashbacks show us that Cal dealt with conflict all the way up until the moment that we see him put on the cape and probably even further after that. It's a different kind of conflict, but watching those moments where I think one of my favorite moments early on is when he is kind of having his x-ray vision come to life and he runs away runs into the broom closet and all the kids and the teacher surrounding him and he's holding his ears and his mom oh, i love diane lane in this she's just so amazing comes to him and she says clark it's 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 your mom and he says the world's too big mom and she says to him make it smaller clark and she's trying to help him understand. She, he's not an outcast to her. I mean, obviously, she loves him to death. Uh, so does Jonathan. But to see those moments happen, it reminds us that he struggles with being human. He struggles with understanding who he is. And what Snyder does is that he shows us that he discovers that he is not from this world until he's like 11 or 12 years old. Like, that's something we don't get from the original entries. We assume that early on, Jonathan and Martha were like, hey, you're an alien. We're going to deal with it. No, they were, they were trying to make him feel as comfortable and as human as they could until finally that moment happened where Jonathan Kent says, here, I need to show you something. 
And there's that great, great intimate moment where he says to Jonathan, he says, does this mean I have to stop being your son or I can't be your so, And Kevin Costner's voice breaks. And this is what I almost cried at this point. He says, you are my son, but you don't have to pretend. And that moment for me, Aaron says, this is Cal. Cal is both Clark and this other person that make him complete. And so having those flashbacks, having those pockets of showing off not only his capabilities, but also the struggle that he is dealing with allows us as an audience to, yes, get a refreshing take on his origin story, but allow us to be empathetic with him. Because at one point we were all awkward kids. Now we didn't have amazing powers that we had to hide. But there were things about us that we weren't proud of, things that we tried to hide from the world, things that were embarrassing to us and that if they got out, the world would look at us differently. Cal did the same thing. He dealt with the same thing. His was on a far more monumental scale. But I think what Snyder does is he reminds us that we were all kids once too and that we dealt with those things. And I think that's more effective than what Donner did, which is really just kind of telling a sequential story of like, oh, yep, Clark Kent, he's got these amazing powers, he can't use them. Oh, it's Clark Kent, he's got the amazing powers, but he can't use them. And while that worked for that entry, I think what Snyder needed to do was to allow us, just like on Krypton, connect with these characters in a way that felt personal. That's what he did for us here on Earth when we get to see Cal growing up in little ways that really fill in the gaps answer the questions that we might be having as the story goes along. So, so right. And I think one other thing that really helps with this particular version of Clark Kent, Kal-El, is when we see his two fathers in this section of the film, both addressing him, we go through the post-bus saving incident that you're referring to, where at the end of that, he says, can't I just keep pretending I'm your son? We get that back and forth with Jonathan Kent, it's very similar to what his father, Jorel explains to him through hologram once he finds the ship, once he finds the codex, right? Jonathan is comforting Clark. He says, first he tells him, he says, you're the answer, son. You're the answer to are we alone in the universe? And that's when Clark's like, I don't want to be. <laughs> I don't want to be that. Which, again, I can't help but get with the Christian christological references here i mean at one point in this movie he even talks about how he's 33 years old so let's just hit it on the nose and pretend not pretend it's not there jesus didn't want to be either he says that at one point but he ultimately he does but he struggles with that jonathan responds to that says i don't blame you son it'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear but you're not just anyone clark and i have to believe that you were sent here for a reason all these changes that you're going through one day you're going to think of them as a blessing and when that day comes, you're going to have to make a choice, a choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. And that is something that is both equally unique to Superman, who has these dual personalities and these superpowers, but also very relatable to anybody and everybody who's grown up thinking about the, their future. And not as a child, not understanding what life is going to be like as an adult when it comes to responsibilities and when it comes to some of the things they're going to have to decide about whether or not to do with their life. 
And what's great is that when he talks to Jorel, it's very similar conversation. And I feel like for Clark, it's so nice. It must be nice to have these two dads that are on the same page because Jorel tells him you're a child of both. He says the same. He's echoing what Jonathan Kent has already said to him. You can embody the best of both worlds. The people on Earth are different from us. It's true, but ultimately, I believe this is a good thing. They won't necessarily make the same mistakes we did. Very optimistic guy. But if you guide them, Cal, if you give them hope, that's what this symbol means. The symbol of the House of El means hope. Embodied within that hope is the fundamental belief, the potential of every person to be a force for good. That's what you can bring them. And I love that because they're both hitting on the same thing. Both dads believe that he can be this bridge between universes that are is going to be hopeful and be the person who is going to make the right choice to stand up proud in support of humanity right, right. on earth it's a beautiful thing and I, and I know that we have seen the characters with that belief in other editions of superman whether it's comics or movies or TV shows, but the way in which it's given to us in this movie for me is very powerful and it feels much more thorough. It, it yeah. just connected. Well, connected is the word that I was thinking of too, in that you have these two characters who for different motivations, different reasons see Cal as different. Jonathan sees him as different because he has these powers and because he was put here for a reason. Jarrell sees him as different because he wasn't born from this Genesis chamber that he didn't have a predestiny. He was not predestined to be a soldier or a politician or a philosopher or a scientist that because he was born of natural birth, his stars have not been aligned. He hasn't been predetermined or pre-baked as like you are going to be this and it's really cool to see how this person this entity this alien means the same thing to both of these individuals that he doesn't fit into a certain bubble he doesn't fit into a certain kind of mold for different reasons from the earthly standpoint he's different because he has these powers and because those powers will potentially at the wrong time if he reveals them to the world will be exploited but he also has the power to be either good or evil with those abilities and then from Jarrell's standpoint he has the ability because he is unique because he is not built from something artificial something scientific something synthetic he can craft his own story he can make his own path and both of his fathers, I think, see that potential in him. What I love, Aaron, is that they both recognize that it's his choice. Now, granted, Jonathan Kent has some authority over Clark, but he knows that at some point Clark could just completely denounce his father's wishes and just go do his own thing. He could play football if he wanted to. He could go do something probably evil or he could use his powers for his own selfish gain. Yet there's something innate in him 
as a an in, as a person, I guess we'll call him a person, not necessarily a human, but a person that knows that he still needs guidance. And I think that's such a great quality that Cal has is that he sees himself as always wanting to learn, always wanting, always needing to hear from someone who is wise. And I loved seeing him interact with Jarrell. And I loved seeing how, as he's getting this history of Krypton, which, by the way, visually is just fantastic. I love the way that Jarrell explains how we get to see that. But seeing how he responds to it, there's no regret in him. There's no frustration. There's not, why did you leave me? No, he says, what questions do you have? I said, well, I have a ton. First of all, why? The way Cavill delivers that line, it's not out of resentment. It's not like, why did you leave me? It's, why did I have to go? What was this? And Jarrell explains it to him in a way that makes sense to him, that helps him realize that it wasn't just for him to escape because he was this special kid, but because Jarrell, just like Zod, for different motives, wanted to see the future of Krypton survive. And I think it's interesting that both Jarrell and Zod, with that same motivation, their end game was very different. And uh, but yeah, I, I love seeing their relation, his relationship with his two dads just merge at some point and see that kind of common message given to him from both a Kryptonian and an Earth Earthling perspective. Yeah, it's it's very much a my two dads situation. I, I wanted to ask you about your feelings on what Jonathan Kent is telling him. We talk about new, we mentioned the football scene. He does play football in Smallville, by the way, because we have a whole series. So we get to spend an episode doing that. Just so you know, people who are listening, it's worth watching. Anyway, is Jonathan Kent, I'm going to ask you this hard question. Is he right in telling Clark that he must hide his powers, even at the risk of letting harm come to others because the world is not ready for him? Very ethical dilemma here. Do you let people die or do you save them? in order to preserve your secrecy so that you can save more later. What do you think? Because I know Zack Snyder is going, is he's hinting at this. He's wanting us to consider this question. Well, I guess in the words of Jonathan Kent, maybe <laughs> it's a, that's a great line. Brilliant answer. And I love the way I love the fact that he lets Jonathan Kent answer that question because you can see Costner. He is, he is, he wrestles with that because he knows fundamentally if there is a life to save that you can save, you save it. But he also understands there is a greater thing and that the moment that Clark reveals his powers in some way, shape or form, things are going to change. And if we're going to take the Christology to another level, there is, if you read in the gospel of John, there are so many times when Jesus talks about being about his father's business and that what he's doing, it's not at the proper time, that there is an incredible sense of timing that Jesus has when it comes to his father's mission. In this case, we do see that from Jonathan's point of view, where he's essentially saying, it's not the right time yet, son. It's not the right time. And I don't know that I agree with that because I don't, if I, if I'm agreeing with that, that means I'm agreeing with letting people suffer. So maybe is my answer. That's not many. 
I know it's, it's vague, a cop out. It's but this is not. This is why this. This is why this conversation is so good because I can't get to a definitive. No, I don't of course think not. that Zack Snyder wants us to get to a definitive because I think he wants us to wrestle with it from a human point of view. That's what makes the character interesting. Yes, is that is absolutely. that you can do both, right? You can make yourself an argument for well, absolutely, he should save people. He has the ability to do so. It's a risk worth taking to save one single life. But you can also talk yourself into if he saves one life and then is essentially robbing himself of the opportunity to save millions of lives, then it's that age old dilemma of what's, what is one life worth? Is it worth a million lives? Who, how, what is the value of one? And so it's fascinating to me. It also takes into consideration like fate and the idea of like, was this person supposed to be in this position at this time without you there intervening or not? Uh, and I love it. I, I do agree that there's not an answer. It's a maybe. And that's what makes Superman Superman. It's what makes Jesus Jesus is that they, they have to carry that. They have to own that choice, right? They have to make that decision and live with the ramifications of it that they're able to do that. And that is superhuman. That is supernatural. It is not a human ability and trait to be able to make those decisions. And Clark can do that. He can shoulder that burden like Jonathan and Jor-El both tell him he will be able to do. And it is fascinating. And I love the way that it presents itself uh, again in this movie and the way that it shows up. As we move on here, before we get into Zod showing up, I wanted to mention one last thing about this. I guess I call this like the end of that introduction section is when he wears the suit. And I know we talked about this in Superman one, how like it was kind of cool. Like, oh, you finally get to see him in the in the suit. And like, it's kind of neat. Like, I call it neat, Patrick. It is not neat in Man of Steel. It is effing epic. Okay. Like I lose it. Okay. Like I have this incredible emotional feeling when he steps out in this suit and goes through this brief training montage, if you will, of testing out his powers with this narration in the background of Jor-El telling him the only way to know how strong is to keep testing your limits. There is this moment that after this viewing, I will always associate with this film. And he is flying and he's trying to go higher. And he's, we zoom in on Superman's face and we get a giggle. He giggles. He literally is like just feeling the jubilation of what he is experiencing. We don't get that to see that in superheroes hardly ever, right? Like he's enjoying his powers. When do we get to see that? And I loved it. I thought it was so cool. And he goes higher and higher and he bursts up. And then we get a very brief moment of levity and laughter in which Zack Snyder is not like this great comedic guy. Like there's not a ton of this, but it happens right here. And I felt like it is perfectly placed because we get that giggle. He bursts up into the sky and then it's like, he, it's like the age old cartoons where you like see him like sputter out. He's like, per, 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 like he runs out of gas and then he plummets. And of course it's cinematically awesome because when he hits the ground, he explodes it. He actually hits a mountain and like knocks the top off of a mountain and like tumbles and like the earth like blows up around him and stuff. It's awesome. And he gets up and he keeps going because 
He's got to figure out what he can and what he can't do. I love it. I think this was incredible and as iconic. And again, I go back to nostalgia and being the first when we see Christopher Reeve doing it and doing it in a way that is perfect with what you have available to do for you in the 80s. It was the 80s? Is the early 80s, right? 70s. Late 70s, mid 70s. Somewhere in the 70s. Yeah. This for the 2000s is what I needed to see. And I just want to stand up and scream and cheer and be like, that's my guy. And that is the beauty to me of what cinema allows us to experience in this day and age, the time that we live in. And we shouldn't take it for granted. This is why blockbusters make the world go round when it comes to box office money. Because this is why we go to the theater, and this is a different experience than we've ever been able to have, and it is visceral. You can feel it in your bones, uh, and it gets you emotionally attached and excited as well. And so I just, I think this is, like, this was so close to being my connecting point because it just blew me away. This moment where we see him in the suit, I think, is a clear distinctive separator that this is not superman of 1978 and it's not a slap in the face by any means as i was re as i was watching the movie of course i'm queuing up imdb and reading some of the trivia and one of the things that came up when snyder was putting this together was that he was approached by other cast members from previous entries saying hey we can make cameos we can come in he distinctly wanted this movie to be independent of every other one. Superman Returns is a an indirect sequel to Superman 2. I believe Brian Singer has gone on record as saying that. But Snyder wanted this to be distinct. He wanted this to be original. And up to that point, we got pieces of his origin story that we were familiar with. We got shots and moments that were familiar to us from previous entries. And that's fine. It's always good to borrow because you want to reach back and allow your audience to have that familiarity. The suit not having the red underwear, I think is a clear distinction that this is not the Superman of the 1970s and 80s. The fact that the suit itself has purpose, that the S was an explanation of something, not just a symbol or not just what we saw as, oh, yeah, Superman, yeah, I get that, was a clear distinction that this is not the Superman of the 70s and 80s. Even the color palette, the more muted blues and reds, this was not the Superman of the 70s and 80s. And when we see Superman do all that stuff and have that grin on his face, the moment for me in that scene was, I think, just before he gets hold of the fact that he can fly. It's when his fist is right there on the surface of an iceberg or whatever it is. And we see the snow and ice start separating because of all the power that he is generating right before he explodes. Everything about that scene, Aaron is aggressive. If you notice there's nothing elegant about the way he flies, he flies with power and aggression. Like he is going to punch through the sound barrier in like two seconds because he's that powerful. This is where I think Zack Snyder really, really excels is he captures the heaviness and the aggressiveness of an alien that can do almost anything. 
and we see that. I love the camera work. I love the fact that we have almost like this like this handheld camera effect that zooms in and then zooms out and it's trying to find him. It's tracking him. It really captures that real sense of aggression and acceleration that we don't necessarily get in previous entries. And it's appropriate for this because it sets up the tone for the rest of the movie that it's going to be loud. It's going to be action packed. There's going to be a lot of destruction emotionally, physically, and otherwise. And we better get in our seats and put the seatbelt on because it's going to be a crazy ride. And he does not short us on that. Well, Zod appears after this moment. And I love the way that this goes down. I think it's great the way that he shows up on planet Earth and co-ops the television feed kind of a nod to what happens in Superman 2, but differently, of course. More of like a hacking <laughs> thing going on here. And he threatens Kal-El, saying that he has to surrender or the world will suffer. And this central conflict presents Clark the opportunity to reveal himself, or not, and to make a choice that both of his dads had long said was going to come. And so I wondered for you... As a villain, I know you love Michael Shannon's performance, but as the villain is written, as the story is told, how does Zod present this formidable foe for Clark? And is there a reason to have empathy for him and his reasons in wanting to terraform the Earth and recreate Krypton so that it can live again um, on this new planet? Yeah, there, there's definitely some empathy here, and it obviously starts at the very beginning where we see him wanting to continue to make sure that the spirit of Krypton, the physical essence of Krypton thrives. Where we break down a little bit is the fact that he is a character that will do whatever it takes in order to make sure that his mission is complete and this is where i think a lot of your great contrast between him and cal comes in because he doesn't have a moral compass he has a military compass what is right what is my mission what is my goal i must complete my mission this is the hal 9000 of the world of superman where you have someone who because this is who he was created to be by his own admission, this is what needs to happen. And if he does not fulfill his mission, his life has no purpose. So from that standpoint, Aaron, I can definitely empathize with him. When you have this compulsion, when you're defined by these things, supposedly defined by the fact that you were created to do this thing, not destroy a whole planet, but to really continue the work of what the world of Krypton was doing, which is going to planets and spreading out their culture at the expense of human beings. Absolutely. You do that because that's what you were made to do. That's the, that's the mission that you have. But again, it's the beauty of why we see him as a foil to Clark or to Cal because Cal, his primary motive is not to be a savior of people, but to, when he puts on the cape and the suit to be a beacon 
to be a symbol of hope so that the world can survive. And so when you look at Shannon and how he portrays Zod, what you see is someone who doesn't see another way. He doesn't see the ability to coexist because of the fact that putting humanity in the DNA of Krypton will somehow make Krypton less. It goes back to that great analogy about Hitler and seeing the rest of the world, if you're not German, you are defiled. You are less than. And to be honest, Aaron, that's the only world he knows. He only knows the world of Krypton and what it could be and what it has been, but not what it is. Where Clark has, or Cal has grown up on this world, in this on this planet, in this world, and he's realized that, wait, these people have something too. These people are important. And I I have to be able to stand with them. And there's that great moment, almost a symbolic kind of thing that happens where Cal is getting used to Kryptonian atmosphere inside that plane or inside that ship. And he's like puking. And Zod says he's essentially acclimated to Earth. And what he's really saying is also he's become one of these people. And for us, that's great because we have somebody who can protect us. But imagine the conflict that Cal has where he sees Zod as this Kryptonian, his kin, his planetary kin, who wants to repopulate the Earth and put Krypton on top of it. There's a conflict there. And if it's me, I'm probably throwing up too, not only because I'm getting used to a different atmosphere, but also because emotionally I'm probably going, oh my gosh, there's this huge conflict I have because there are now two distinct races of people who cannot coexist because this one man says that there can be only one race. And so to answer your question, I have empathy for him, but not to the extent of where he wants to take that mission. Like I have empathy in the fact that he feels stuck, he feels compelled, but not to the point of killing an entire human race. Absolutely. And I agree. And I think, you know, for me, one of the more empathetic moments for me in the film comes when he is talking to Clark and he's discussing how he killed Jorel because of his duty to his people. And he says, yeah, I did. And not a day goes by that it doesn't haunt me, but I do it again. And I just that was chilling to my bones when he said that, because it was like he laments losing Jarrell. Like he didn't want to have to kill him. He felt like he had to because it was the only possible way to save. He he believes in that one life is not as worth a million. Like it's almost the exact opposite. It's the same concept, but in reverse exactly. of what, of what exactly. Jonathan is teaching yeah. Clark. Right. And I, I think that that is incredible. Um, and the way that the story shows us that through this version of the film and he goes on to talk about how he tells Clark, he says, the fact that you possess a sense of morality and we do not gives us an evolutionary advantage. And if history has proven anything, it is that evolution always wins. And I thought that that was a really great line as well, because he's completely tuned in and understanding that Clark is 
reliant on a set of rules that Zod is not. Zod only is concerned with the end game. And how how we get there does not matter to him as long as the end result is achieved. And Clark has a path that he has to navigate in order to get to the end result that he wants. And yet, in the end, there is still a sense of a morality and a, and I guess a lack of empathy in a way. Not really a lack of empathy, but an understanding and a maturity that I think 33-year-old Clark has come to have that he would not have had when he was a young teenager. And that's what Jonathan was trying to get at. It's what Jorel was trying to explain to him when they're telling him, like, you will be the bridge between our worlds. You can be that for us. His reasoning when Zod is attacking, he tells Lois, I believe it is, he says, Krypton had its chance. And that's when he takes down Zod's ship. He Because it comes to that point where it's like, you're going to destroy all of Krypton at this point. Like, you're going to take away the opportunity for them to be reborn by, by taking away this world engine and not letting them terraform the Earth. And his response is Krypton had its chance. It's the same thing that Zod is saying about evolution. In a sense, he says evolution will always win, but that's evolution in in action. Like, Krypton had its opportunity, and evolution pushed it out because it ended up not being able to stay, sustain itself. And so what's left, what's next is the new. The new is humanity. And now we need to preserve and protect this ideal. And I, I love it. I think it's just a really deep storyline and idea that is explored in the midst of all of this crazy cool action uh, and blockbuster atmosphere that we're seeing. And I think that that's, it's very consistent with the tone of just an action movie, but it hits on these deeper emotional ideas that the comics give us the opportunity to explore. And I want to talk about that action. So, you know, from a cinematic standpoint, I want to know what you think about the fight scenes, because I love them. I know you said they're a little long. You'll probably reiterate that here, but, they are so interesting to watch and it's so hard to go back and see this part of like the old Superman films when there's little miniature helicopters that are clearly like being like flown around with a puppet string uh, somewhere up above the sky versus when we see like CGI action sequences in the streets of Smallville taking place and I think you mentioned this earlier, but like the ferocity of Superman, right? The power that is behind these Kryptonians, Zod and his others as well. The destruction is incredible and, and it should be incredible if it's going to be accurate, if it's going to truly show like what it would look like if somebody was lasering a building, right? And so I appreciate that and I enjoy the action in this film Quite a bit, actually. And I, I thought that there's a cool nod to like Independence Day, in my opinion, when they're going in there first about to send the bomb at Zod's ship. And there's these shields that pop up and all their missiles, all the, the ship's missiles are like flying around, going astray. And just totally reminded me of Independence Day when they first go up and try to attack 
the alien vessels and they have those force fields and their missiles can't get through and they end up all blowing themselves up essentially. So I thought both the superhero ground action and the superhero air action were both outstanding and enjoyed it immensely. Um, and I wanted to say that, so the big, we'll talk about Zod specifically and the choice that Clark makes at the end of this, but when it comes to the destruction, the big debate was this destruction that Clark is causing. There's all of these countless lives that are being lost because of the way that he is going after Zod and fighting him in the middle of Metropolis. And I don't have a problem with it. I think it could be handled slightly better. I think we could have had a couple shots that showed us more directly the loss of life. I think it's hard to judge it completely because in now with foresight, we have Batman v Superman and the opening of that film to give context to the destruction that was being caused and to get to see it from a different character's perspective. And that's more, I think it, it's like Snyder understood that and was able to address it in a great way, in my opinion, but I don't have a problem with it, Patrick, because what I see is a person that understands that if Zod is not stopped, that it doesn't matter what all happens to all these people. I see Clark in this moment literally living out the ideal that Jonathan Kent has asked him to at the beginning of this movie. When Jonathan Kent is saying, you can't stop this bus from sinking and drowning, those kids from drowning, because you can't reveal yourself, it's basically the same concept as you need to preserve humanity, and in order to do that, there are going to be some losses. You cannot say, when you, when it comes down to making a choice, do you save the planet or do you not save the planet because you were trying to do it carefully? And I think that Clark never shows us a side of himself that would tell me he is okay with it. If I saw Clark in this movie and he was completely indifferent to the destruction I think I would have an issue. There's one scene I have a problem with, and that is the very end when he finally reunites with Lois and he is able to kiss her and it is amidst the destruction. It does feel a bit tone deaf to me at that moment, because I under while I understand the idea of Clark reuniting and the, the powerfulness of finally being able to say you're safe there's so much destruction and death around him that it does seem a little bit too tunnel vision for the character at that moment but outside of that i don't see him acting in a way that is reckless for the sake of being reckless it is with a purpose it is attempting to take this villain down and stop this planet from being completely destroyed and so I enjoy the action, and I also don't have a major problem with it, so I don't then not like it because of its thematic substance either. But I, you know, I wonder how you feel about this, because I know people are all over the map. And and rightly so. 
there are some things about it that I, I, I don't like the kiss at the end. I think that was a bit tone deaf. Put that at the very end when things are kind of like maybe a hug, maybe like, are you okay? And then have Zod come in. That, that was a foul on, on Snyder, from my opinion. What I will say is several things. One, I completely agree with you, and I hadn't thought about that angle that Superman is thinking about, or Cal is thinking about the world. He's not thinking about individuals at that point. That doesn't mean that he is indifferent to humanity or to the people of Metropolis. Several things are happening here. One, you have a guy who is still discovering his powers. There's that argument, which I can kind of get on board with. He's still young. Yes, he's had his powers for a long time, but flying has been something very new to him. And it's not like he's taking his flying test and he's failing. But at the same time, he's also fighting an equally powered Kryptonian that he does not know what he's capable of. And you watch these sequences play out. And Cal, I I don't mind saying that he's got tunnel vision when it comes to Zod because Zod is his first priority. He can't be everywhere at once. And he says in the film indirectly, I'm not the savior here. I am a symbol of hope. I am I can give people the hope they need to be better than themselves, be better than who they are right now. Does that mean that everybody should have superpowers? Absolutely not. But nowhere in the movie do I remember Zack Snyder in his script or in his direction saying that Superman was going to be the savior of blank. Later on in Batman v Superman, there's this really, really great moment where Superman is looking up and he's surrounded by all these people who are trying to touch him. And I think in the background, it says our savior. That's not a, he's not happy about that. You can see the expression on his face is one of anguish. It's one of sadness, one of like discomfort. That's not who he is, Aaron. In this version of Superman, he is not the Superman that goes and gets cats down from trees. He's not the one that stops cranes from falling on people necessarily. He knows that he has a greater mission. And when you watch him go through Smallville, which is, by the way, a great kind of nod back to Houston, you know, Planet Houston, that fight. And then we see the Metropolis fight. It's just in the same way that I described the way in which we get introduced to him as Superman. It's aggressive. It's dangerous. It's powerful. When you're watching the Houston sequence and then when you're watching the Metropolis sequence, I never feel like anybody's in danger, not because Superman's going to save the day, but because the whole choreography of that is very loose. It's very elegant. It's very much non-aggressive. <laughs> the first time you see the power of the Kryptonians, you see Kalel get thrown through three buildings in Smallville, including a Sears, I think, and an IHOP. That sets the tone for how powerful not one, not two, not even three, but four Kryptonians fighting on Earth. You cannot contain that. You can't send them to a cornfield and have them fight in there. That's not the way fights work, Aaron. Fights don't work in a way that says, you know what? We should probably take this outside. 
you know, we should probably take this away. They're not in a bar trying to say, you know what, let's not destroy things. This is in the moment stuff. And yes, I thought they were more lengthy than I would have liked. But the choreography and the purpose behind all the stuff that went into it, despite its length, was great. And I think what it did for me was it just reminded me of how powerful these beings are and how dangerous they can be. And yes, just like we watch Superman and we see Zod and then we see him disappear and like, what? Oh, you're setting this up for a sequel. I think the same thing happens with Man of Steel and and BVS. That opening sequence of BVS shows us from Bruce's point of view what destruction looks like and the collateral damage that it causes and how that can look to people who don't understand what's going on. And I think in a lot of ways, it really articulated the perspective of what the modern audience was experiencing, including great writers like Mark Wade, who despised the ending, who in an article on Thrillbent says that he got up and, and just left. He said, I'm done. I quit. This is not my Superman. Mark, you've got every right to say that but it's my Superman and this is what my Superman experiences with all that context in mind. And the truth is if this happened in New York with five superpowered beings, Oh wait, it did. You know, you're not going to see that the same way. And I'm not saying that it's unfair to call this a, you know, you can't compare this to a Marvel movie, but Snyder saw what he did as needing to have meaning. Whereas with New York and the Avengers, buildings crumble and things get destroyed. But you know what? New York's fine. It'll just get built again. Yeah, until the next alien invasion. But the fact is, we don't see people reacting and saying, hey, you know what? That's not okay. You just destroyed our city. Why couldn't you take these aliens to Queens? Why couldn't you take them to you know, Chicago? We don't get that because that's not the story that's being told. And I think that when you watch all this play out, yes, it feels like disaster porn in a lot of ways. Like It's like, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop. But I think that's what Snyder's going for. He's like, look, you don't stop disasters. You can't just say to Hurricane Katrina, you know what, stop. You're destroying too much. Can you stop, please? And I think that maybe there's a fine line of entertainment and whatever else that he was walking by saying, look, I want to – get the impact of this felt with my audience. And unfortunately it came across to a lot of people as negative. Well, I think it's all in the perception. It's on what you want from your movie. And that's the difference is that people weren't ready to accept realistic consequences for their superheroes because everything is so just fantastical in this world where everything goes right. And, and actually to your point, you know, in Avengers, it is a problem. It is dealt with in civil war in a big way in which, but that's the thing. Like, it's storytelling doesn't happen in a bubble. Like, Man of Steel is a singular event. It's okay to walk out of this movie questioning Superman. That doesn't make it a bad movie. That's my issue with this, is that for me to say, I think Superman was wrong to stand there and kiss Lois in the midst of the destruction, that doesn't make it a bad movie. It makes that character have made a choice that I wouldn't agree with. And oh my gosh, there's a superhero that I don't agree with every choice he makes. It's an audience that can't accept that. They they can't say, well, no, he wouldn't have done that. 
because he has to be he has to make this choice and this choice and this choice and this choice and this choice. No, this Superman made that choice. And that's the difference is I think we as an audience have to be able to say, I didn't like that choice. Clark, you 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 made a bad choice. That doesn't make it bad writing. It makes it a character who is growing and experiencing things and is evolving and changing and all of these things like humans do. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I I just it's such an interesting thing when people are so passionate. You don't get mad when, you know, someone kills somebody in a gangster movie and it's not the best decision at the time because you're like, oh, well, that's fine. Well, even though you don't necessarily agree with the, the choice being made, right? Like, you, oh, I wish he wouldn't have done that, but because it feels natural to you, you're accepting of it. And And I think that everything that pretty much takes place here is for the most part right in line with what Superman would have to do right up until the end, right up until the end when he has to make this choice and he finally gets Zod and Zod is about to laser these people in a downtown train station. And we get the classic Superman or a super villain like monologue. And I love it. He says, I exist only to protect Krypton. Like he reiterates what he is there to do. That is the sole purpose for which I was born, and every action I take, no matter how violent or how cruel, is for the greater good of my people. And now I have no people. My soul, that is what you have taken from me. I'm going to make them suffer, Cal. These humans you've adopted, I will take them from you one by one. And he literally says, there's only one way this ends, Cal. Either you do, either you die, or I do. And then he says, if you love these people so much, you can mourn for them and is about to just kill them in cold blood right there. And people got really upset that Superman killed, just like people got upset that Batman killed. Right. What do you want Superman to do in this situation? So this goes back to my rant that I just went on about writing. The story we have set up so far in Superman's in this Snyder verse version of the tale, the character of Zod that we have seen given to us from the moment we see him on Krypton all the way to this is consistent as a character arc. That's all that matters to me. This, I have zero doubt, is how Zod would react because this is how Zod was in the very first scene of the movie when we met him. So this is how Zod would act now. That being said, now... Your Superman in your movie has to also progress according to the Superman that has been introduced and have to make a choice. This is the only choice this Superman would make. And so people that get upset about this, they're not just upset about Superman killing. They're upset about the whole presentation of character arcs, if they're really honest with themselves. And they're upset about having a villain that actually has ideals that he is committed to instead of just kind of casually being a villain who is willing to, you know, take it out, you know, just just be knocked down at the end and come back later, like we see so often. That's what people are really upset about not seeing. It's not about just whether or not Superman kills or not, because if you look at this narratively, to me, in my opinion, Patrick, there is no doubt that this is how it plays out. And so I have zero issues with this whatsoever. And I think that the ramifications of it clearly affect Clark. And that is what is important to me, is that 
his character has to accept the consequences of the choice. He is willing to make it to protect humanity, and he has to live with that, just like Zod said he had to live with having made a similar choice to kill Jor-El. And I love it. I think it's wonderful storytelling, actually. I think so, too. And it was a shock to watch the first time. But I think what Snyder does so well is obvious. That scream that Cavill gives is perfect. Because in that moment, we realized that one, he didn't want to kill. Two, the end of Zod meant that he was truly the last Kryptonian to live. And three, he has to live with the regret of making that choice that even though for him there was no other way, it was a difficult decision. And he had to finish off that character arc. He had to end that story because Zod was not going to stop. If you threw him into the Phantom Zone or you threw him into a Kryptonian prison on Earth, if that was even the thing, one, you, you weaken that moment because this isn't about capturing someone. It's about ending that mission that could destroy humanity. And you and I talk a lot about this on the show when it comes to superhero movies. We like the neighborhood stories. We don't want the, oh my gosh, the planet's being threatened by a universal monster that's going to just overtake this. And these are a lot of the Superman stories we get. I mean, the fact is, in the comics... When you're dealing with a superpowered alien, you probably can't fight him off with a New York threat or a threat from Kansas or something like that. And that's okay. That's why I think he's hard to write because, frankly, we get tired of those stories. I think that's why Brainiac is such an interesting character because he's a challenge to Clark on a more uni- universal, like not universal, like overall, but like in the universe kind of scale. So when we look at Zod, and we think, okay, he could have thrown him into the Phantom Zone or something could have happened where he could have detained him. There's always going to be that threat that Zod's going to take over the world or take over the planet. What I find interesting, Aaron, is that Zod never wanted to be king of anything or emperor. This wasn't like the Terrence Stamp Zod that we got introduced to, who was like, I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to be Zod ruler of everything. No, he was fulfilling a mission. And Kalel said, you can't do that because it's going to cost millions of lives. And the history of humanity, of the people of Earth, is going to be expunged. In that moment, he makes a choice. He says, is my culture, are my people, the Kryptonians, more valuable than the people who are here? And I think when he snaps Zod's neck, He makes the choice, but there's still conflict in him because he knows that he has just given up every possibility of seeing Krypton come back to life, of his Kryptonian culture. He's lost his father because he's been erased from the memory banks. He's not not met his mother. All he has is Earth. 
and the people of Earth and his mom and Lois and the people that he's come in contact with. And so for the rest of his life, he's going to have to hold on to that grief, hold on to that choice that he made, knowing that it was the right choice, but it was still a life-changing, difficult choice for him to make. And when he screams, I think that's what Snyder allows us to feel is all those things in that one scream. And that's why I think it's it's good. It's a great moment. If he hadn't screamed, if he hadn't felt any remorse, if he had just kind of sat back and said, okay, it's done, that would have really pinched. I would not have liked that as much because that would tell me that he didn't have that kind of conflict. And that would have gone against what we'd seen him experience up to that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Exactly how I feel about it. And, you know, it, it is also it's fun that I think not fun to say something's fun at that moment after you just went on that very emotional explanation about that. But, you know, the fact that just like in Superman 2, Superman is responsible for bringing Zod here and Zod calls it out in this movie. He's like, dude, you turn on the beacon and you brought me here. And, and so there is a humongous level of responsibility that he feels for having brought this on the world essentially that whether it's his intentional fault or not it's his to fix um and it's his solution and and the fact that humans have given their lives as well i love that there is a colonel in this the colonel from the beginning and he gets a great little arc where you know he's getting beat up in smallville and the female kryptonian tries to tell him like death is a good death is his own reward. And he gets to throw that back at her as he rams that bomb in. And, and again, feels very independence day like to take out that ship. But I love that moment too, because it's not just Superman, it's humans. And that guy actually says at one point he stands up for Superman. He, he comments and he says something to the effect. He says, this man is not our enemy. Like he understands it. Right there at the end of the Smallville fight, they come to trust Clark, which is important um, as well. And so he, he's carrying all of that with him. And I just think it is agreed that the scream is critical to making it work in a way that is narratively consistent, which is what I care about more than anything. And I, I just feel like it, it is here. Well, I'm sure there's plenty more we could talk about if we wanted to keep going, but let's go ahead and move to our connecting points um, and get all emotional and such. So I'm going to let you get started because yours is more of a traditional connecting point scene. What did you take away from this one? The scene that I always get emotional when I watch this movie is Jonathan Kent's death. I love Mark Wade as a writer. I think he is incredibly talented. I think he is so passionate about Superman as a character. He's written uh, several comics series centering on Superman. He's also done Daredevil, which has been fantastic. And his article on Thrillbent is essentially his reaction to the movie. I disagree with a lot of it. I, I really do. But there is one section, I'm going to just quote him, that... I think really sums up how I feel. He says, I love, love, love that scene where Clark didn't save Jonathan because David Goyer did something magical. He took two moments that individually I would have hated and he welded them together 
into something amazing. Out of context, I would have hated that Clark said, you're not my real dad, or whatever he says right before the tornado. And out of context, I would have loathed that Clark stood by frozen with helplessness as the tornado killed Jonathan. But the reason that beat worked is because Clark had just said, you're not my dad. The last real words he said to Jonathan. Tearful Clark choosing to go against his very his every instinct in that last second because he had to show his father he trusted him after all. Because he had to show Jonathan that Jonathan could trust him and that Clark had learned. Clark did love him. That worked for me hugely. It was a very brave story choice, but it worked. It worked largely on the shoulders of Cavill, who sold it. It worked as a tragic rite of passage. And I think Wade hit the nail right on the head with all of that. In that moment, we wanted Jonathan to be rescued. And he was telling Clark by holding up his hand and just shaking his head, just holding his hand up and shaking his head slightly, it's not your time. It's not time. And, oh, to have the ability to save the person you've been closest to your whole life, who has been your father, and to be have to make the choice, not be told, not be made to, but to choose not to save. The way in which that scene plays out is absolutely tragic and absolutely necessary. Had Clark saved him that moment, things would have been completely different for his life, I think. And it's because of that that he believed in Jonathan enough and Jonathan believed in him. They both trusted each other. And I think in that moment, he was also saying, you are my dad. And I think Jonathan was saying, and you are my son. And they're both saying, I love you. And all those great emotional things in that moment without saying a word. I also love the fact that the sound editing is pulled back to nothing. And it's just Zimmer's score. That sells it for me. That whole complete package sells that scene for me. And to me, that's my connecting point and probably will always be that. I know we talk about rewatches and things, how your connecting point changes, but this is always going to stand out to me as the moment where I connect with the movie the most. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it is a critical, if not the most critical piece or event, I should say, in Clark's backstory that leads to where he becomes or who he becomes ultimately. And you're absolutely right. For all of those reasons, it would have been mine as well. What is my 1B, I guess, I could say, because it is a phenomenal and incredibly emotional scene in which I definitely get very teary and upset. And it's, I think Kevin Costner's perfect for this role. He's not in the movie too much. He's there just enough. And dude, the fact that it's the head nod and the hand holding it, I just, I can't help but be transported into my own head thinking about like, what would I do? Like, could I make the decision that Clark is making, right? If my dad told me, don't come after me, how would I react to that? That, that Those are the thoughts that are going through my head when I'm watching that. And uh, it's very emotional as well. So I get it. My connecting point is 
I don't have a lot to say about this. It's Hans Zimmer's score. Uh, just the whole entirety of Hans Zimmer's score. I was reading an article about this, and I remember noticing this time around just how different it was than the John Williams score that we get in Superman 1 and 2. And I guess I've always known that, but I never really thought about it. I never really considered, you know, normally that's not what happens. You don't typically just take a John Williams score and not like sample it somehow or something, but there's no sampling of John Williams score here. It's gone. It's just gone. And that's fascinating uh, and ballsy in a lot of ways. And the article I was reading, this interview with Zimmer, he was talking about how it all stemmed from when he finally got around to seeing the Superman that Zack Snyder was putting on screen in Man of Steel. And it was a very different sort of alien from the one that John Williams had scored so many decades ago. And it couldn't be the same. It wasn't the same person. And I love that recognition because it's everything we've just talked about in this episode about why this is ours. Not better, not worse necessarily. It's ours, it's our preference, the one that we connect with and resonate with the most, this version of Superman. And he needs a different theme. He needs his own music. And Zimmer said, as he was writing this, he was thinking of the story as, what if you are extraordinary and your entire ambition is to join humanity and to become human? What does it mean to become human? What does it mean to be an outsider who really wants to join the human race? That's not something that just comes naturally to us because we're already part of the human race. And I think that he does an incredible job here from the very first time we hear it. It stands out. It moves me emotionally. And I can think of a lot of scores, Patrick, throughout the years that I really enjoy and that I love. But special, special, special scores make me feel. I get actual chills in my body when this score comes on at various times. It evokes that emotion and it does it at every turn, whether it's trying to get me to feel intense nervousness during the action scenes or to experience the awe of Clark's powers, like it ramps up to powerfully during that moment where he puts on the suit for the first time and explores his limits. I feel this movie through its music as much as any superhero movie that I can remember, to be honest. And I think that it is such a critical contributor to the emotional core of the story that without it, Clark isn't who he is to me. Like, it informs his feelings. It informs the nature of the struggles that he's going through at every moment and the fact that it is pretty much ever present and it is sort of just so quietly there and always feels like it's rising and rising and it very very rarely rises to peaks which is what we like to see a lot of times in music is we will see like every piece of music will rise 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 and peak but we don't see that in Zimmer score we see a lot of like consistent rising without ever peaking until we get to the end and it just builds and builds and builds to that 
that moment. And it just is amazingly memorable. I think it fits the character perfectly. It is very different um, than John Williams epic theme. And I think that that's just very special. And I don't know that many people could have come up with something that worked quite as well. And I know I'm a Zimmer shill and I love him more than anybody else. And so it's not surprising, but it's crazy because of all the Zimmer scores that I re-listen to frequently and I think about being my favorites, it's never been Man of Steel. But after watching it this time, I'm like, man, I just want to put this on repeat because it makes me feel so many different emotions and it just, it just bubbles up inside me. And, and, I, and I just, it's amazing to me. So the score throughout the entirety of the movie affected me emotionally more than any one single scene. And so that's why it was my connecting point. It's a good one. And it's top five soundtrack score for me. What I think is great about it is that Zimmer latches on to that. And I'm not doing it justice by any means, so I apologize, but he'll use it with strings to kind of create a Greek little resonancy and like a, uh, that rising. But then he'll use it in the Jonathan Kent death scene with just piano. And it's the same theme. It's the same five notes. I think it's five, but done differently. And by being able to use those same four or five notes in so many different ways to articulate what's happening in a moment, it's really powerful. And it's on repeat for me as well. If I want some kind of instrumental music in the background while I'm working, Man of Steel goes on easy peasy for me. That's awesome. I would get, I got to try that. <laughs> See it makes how it me want to watch my the product, movie again. That's the thing. My productivity. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll wrap up this episode of Feeling Film. And that will finish up our love for Batman and Superman. Well, for now at least. One theme deserves another. And as we mentioned before, we will be taking the next few weeks to celebrate Aaron finally coming over to the best side of Pet Camp and getting a dog. Whoa, whoa. Aaron didn't say that. But not the best side, a new side. Of pet camp. This is my side. This is these are this is my pet. You know this may be anyway. Look for canine centric conversations from now through Thanksgiving, along with a whole lot of dog puns. Things may get rough. <laughs> I was waiting for a for a reaction. I can't believe we're not even there yet, and we're starting this. Oh yeah, for sure we have to as soon as we can. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.